Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, welcome everyone. Hello. I think we're competing with an event in the courtyard, so sorry for those of you that were sent quite far around the building, Matthew. Welcome to the joint event between Editorial Intelligence and Women in Journalism. I'm going to hand over to Jane Martinson in a minute. This is the gender commentaria event linked to the opening of nominations around the UK Comment Awards. You're all welcome to go to the commentawards.com uh, page and nominate men and women alike for the awards. The event is being recorded, therefore everything is on the record. The Twitter hashtag is EIClub, and you can put gender if you like. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jane Martinson, who's the Chair of Women in Journalism, who's a long-time champion of women and women's writing and women's commissioning in The Guardian, I think that's fair to say. And uh, she will introduce her panel. Jane. Okay. I think it's Quintana. Thank you very much, Julia, and to um, Editorial Intelligence for um, organising such a fabulous panel um, tonight to talk about this topic. Um, the title is Gender Commentaria, um, which is quite a fancy title, I think, for the discussion of the balance of men and women writing in British media today. Um, on this panel, I have some of the finest um, members of the uh, British Journalism to, uh, to dis discuss it with me. Um, Matthew Gwyther is the editor of Management Today and has been so for nine years. In that time, he has won the coveted BSME uh, Business Magazine of the Year editor um, for five years, a record five years, I think, Matthew, haven't you? Um, Liz Jones is one of the most prolific columnists writing in British media today, with columns in the Mail and the Mail on Sunday. It seems like every day, Liz. She's the author of two books, The Liz Jones Diary and Diaries and Exmoor Files, and is writing a memoir, I think, as well. Andrew Hill, in the middle, um, is associate editor and managing editor of the financial management editor of the Financial Times. Um, you've been there since 1998 and worked almost everywhere during that time. Um, in a few years ago, 2009, he won, was awarded the um, Commentator of the Year and the Annual Business Journalist of the Year Awards and a Decade of Excellence Award too. Gabby Hinsliff is a freelance political commentator and the author of Half a Wife, A Working Family's Guide to how to get a life. Um, I love that title. Um, and has also been political editor, former political editor of The Observer. Um, Anne Spackman, on my right, um, is the comment editor of The Times and has been so since 2008. Um, before that, she was the editor in chief of Times Online. Um, and when she started at the time, she founded the Bricks and Mortar section. She also, 10 years ago, was awarded the OBE for her work as a trustee for the charity One Parent Families. Um, before being women's editor, two years ago, I was the media editor at The Guardian. Um, and one of the things I uh, never really noticed that much, despite Julia's very kind um, introduction, was just how few women there were writing until my final uh, Media Guardian 100, which I chaired, 
Um, and the last one had just 17% of women in that top 100. So I suppose I'd like to start off, Anne, by saying all the studies, not just awards and uh, power lists, but all the studies um, in America and the UK suggest the balance of comment is about 80-20, byline 75-25 in the British media, men versus women. Why is that? Is that because the women and men themselves, the nature of them, or because of commissioning editors such as yourself always asking men to work? I think if, uh, if you look at the pages, um, well, I bleep at you. Um, if you look at pages um, like, like the ones I'm doing now, which are the sort of hardcore opinion pages, you are almost always going to see more men writing on those pages. If you ask the readers of the paper, um, in whatever form, uh, who were our main columnists and who did they read and whose opinions did they follow, they wouldn't see us as the only opinion pages. They would see um, Catelyn Moran in the magazine and they would see Carol Midgley in Times 2 and they would have a much broader idea of what opinion is. So I think that if you're in, in the bit that, that, as I say, I'm currently doing, you are much more likely um, to get that because we're looking for two, essentially two things. We're looking for people whose opinions you care about, i.e. You're, you're going to see their name and think, I care what the Director of Public Prosecution says about rape, because he's a player in this and he has something of interest. He's a public figure. And if you look across the spectrum of public life, there are more men who are in those kinds of very significant uh, jobs. Um, and you're also covering spheres like politics and economics and business to a larger extent than you are going to do in some other parts of the paper. And I think if you look at the range in British newspapers, um, uh, the, the FT, whose, whose comment pages I read every day, uh, they have no regular women columnists. They very rarely have a woman. I think they have good comment pages. I read them. Uh, they reflect a world where you probably have the lowest percentage of women working, I would think, probably in business in the city. And they are looking in the same way I am for people who have interesting opinions, who can write well, and whose opinions you care about because they have a significant position. Um, so I think we're partly a reflection of, of the way the world is, but I also think that we shouldn't forget that our readers see us a little differently. This issue of um, when, you, when you turn to hardcore opinion, it's nearly always men writing about business and politics. Um, now, I want Andrew and Liz to talk about this. Liz, you wrote um, a great piece earlier this week for the Mail in which you talked about um, your bravery in writing about wearing bikinis and issues that affect women's lives as far greater than these men at the FT who just have to Google LIBOR to write something. Um, do you want to talk about that, about this sort of divide between, you know, serious comment, which has to be done by men, and then the sort of things that perhaps women write? Well, I always find the most readable pieces of writing is that engages me, that has some sort of authority. What I don't like is people writing about stuff they don't know about. So I don't think you can write about Afghanistan if you've, unless you've actually been there. I don't know anything about banking apart from using my card at NatWest. So what I tend to do is go through the back door of a subject. So I might write about the whole economic recession by none of my cards working and not being able to get a bed in a hotel and having to sleep on the streets. But to me, that's more engaging than 
just the very sort of cold, analytical, pontificating. It's actually, you know, I had this argument with the very famous observer columnist who wrote about being a slut. Um, what was her name? Really famous. Catherine Whitehorn. Yeah, Catherine Whitehorn. And I was on Radio 4 with Catherine Whitehorn, and she's, she's about 80. And I was sitting on sort of on the other side of the table. And the journalist on Radio 4 said to Catherine Whitehorn, do you actually, do you like Liz's writing? And she said, well, no, actually, I don't. You know, I wouldn't really write about my husband's tummy being like a football. But to be honest, I don't think she would be published today. I don't, because it's too boring. She has a column in the Observer, doesn't she? But it's a tiny. It, it, she does still write today, but it's a different kind of writing, isn't it? That, well, no, she was doing the same kind of writing, but not. She only wrote about her husband's alcoholism after he died. I mean, at least my husband had a right to reply. He still had a pulse. Do you see what I mean? So it's. But journalism has changed since then, mm. and it has to be compulsive and not as boring and dry and experiential because otherwise you're going to get a guy in Egypt googling and telling you it's so much more riveting than the person at Wapping who's never been to Egypt in his life. Mm. That's how I think it's changed. Mm. So Andrew, the FT is now being held up as a bastion of fabulous journalism um, and as a bit dull, sexless and boring. Um, is it, why are there so many men writing for the FT? Is it that men are the only ones that can write seriously about business, or is it actually sexist? Well, I think, um, first of all, I'd say Liz was spot on in her column. In fact, I broke off from Googling LIBOR in order to read her column um, for the piece that I was writing about Bob Diamond at the, at the time. But the, um, uh, I think there, are, there is a distinction between columnists who are appointed from the staff of the paper, which is clearly in the gift of the editor uh, and the editorial board, to decide who should be the columnists. And that can change you know, at the behest of the editor. And slightly take issue with Anne, it's true that on the op-ed page itself, there is no weekly um, female columnist. But I'd say two of the three best-read columnists on the FT, Lucy Calloway, Gillian Tett, uh, both of whom write regularly in other parts of the paper, are uh, obviously women. And the third is Martin Wolf. Um, the, the issue, I think, is the one that Anne hit on, which is that to a large degree on the outside commentators that are chosen, we're trying to get the expertise that Liz herself refers to of people who know how, from the inside, how banks work, and from the inside, how government works, and from the inside, how foreign policy works. And I'm afraid to say at the moment most of those people are men. And it's still the case. I was the comment edit, op-ed editor um, from 2003 to 2005. I checked before I came here. It's still the case of the, that of the unsolicited uh, submissions to the op-ed pages, 95% are still from men. And that goes to Liz's other point, which is that men push themselves forward to pontificate. They are less concerned about people telling them that they may not know what they're talking about, and they will go on pushing until they get a flat no from the FT. And that's always been the case, certainly since I did that job. And indeed, a further kind of refinement to that, Delphine Strauss, who's one of our four-person comment team 
said to me that it is the, definitely the case that the best women writing for our comment pages are far more nervous about getting it right than the men. The men assume they've got it right. The women call up to say, look, I just want to make a small tweak. I'm not quite sure that's absolutely clear. I'm not, I've not been precise enough. Gabby, that's really I think if you, uh, today or for tomorrow's paper, we have Simon Wolfson who's written for us because the Wolfson Prize was announced tonight. Simon Wilson is a member of the House of Lords. He runs a very successful business. He is a public figure and he could not be more humble about his copy. He is grateful for any change you make. He always says thank you and says you've improved it. But, he, but, but most of the people writing on our pages are not journalists. Most of the people across our spread, if you look right across the piece, I would be surprised if it was over 50% now. And, um, and so I just think, in fairness, that we could, you know, I don't want to caricature, you get people who are tricky and people who are not. And you can encourage people who are tricky to kind of warm up a little bit and sort of bring them along with you. But I think that there are plenty of, of men who are perfectly willing to take editing and deal with it perfectly reasonably. So um, I'd just like to stand up on their behalf. <laughs> editing, though, that was actually pushing themselves to get the commission. It's not the afterwards. Who are thankful for that. You don't probably use that much unsolicited copy in the FT. So primarily what's on op-ed pages will be what the newspaper's gone out and looked for, either from its established columnists or from people that it wants to commission. And I would just like to nail this sort of suggestion that women can't really write about politics or economics or city or banks or anything. You have to look a little bit harder for women who can. And I'm, I'm biased here as a woman who spent my career writing about politics to think that it is physically possible for women to write about politics. But I think we're also forgetting the spread. I mean, if I had one political columnist to take to a desert island, it would be Rachel Sylvester from The Times. There are fantastic Polly Toynbee, Jackie Ashley, Mary Ann Seacart, Mary Riddell. The list goes on. There are quite a lot of women out there writing about politics as established stable columnists. And the question is why they tend to be clustered, oddly enough, in daily papers. All the dailies now have at least one woman. There is a sense now that if you've produced a comment page with three paces on it and they're all by white middle-aged men, that a bell goes off and you think, oh, God, you know, there's very much a thing of get a woman, get a woman, broaden the mix. Um, but Sundays, where there tends to be just one political commentator and some more fluffy commentators around them, and political weeklies like the New Statesman and the Spectator, where there's one person primarily. Oddly enough, it tends to be a boys' club. And it's interesting that where a columnist becomes really the face and the voice of the paper on politics or economics or a serious subject, there's an odd reluctance about going for a woman. I think that's got something to do with authority and who, has, who is perceived to have authority, which is almost, as reporters, we've crossed that line now. It's kind of okay to be a political reporter and people will take you seriously. There's something about columnists that still, I think, I think it's to do with, as a reporter, you rely on the facts. If I wrote a splash tomorrow saying David Cameron's going to resign and then he did tomorrow, you would all think I was a genius and you would read me. Um, if I write a column saying David, David Cameron's going to rue the day, he introduced Lord's Reform, I might be right, I might be wrong. You don't know, I don't know. So you end up taking a judgment about me based at least partly on what you know about me or think you know about me. And you do that at least partly, I think, by looking at the byline picture at the top of the column and looking at who you're reading. So that sounds like a sort of confidence issue, both from the people writing the, the columns, but also the people editing to ask them to do things, a sort of assumption. And also readers, actually. Who readers expect to see? Oh, that's a whole... We have to come back to that, come back to readers. Matthew, it, you know, we talked about business and finance. 
from your perspective, editing a magazine for such a long time, I mean, uh, unusually, magazines, there's normally a sea of women at those uh, BSME um, events. You know, you're actually quite unusual to be editor of a magazine that's uh, and a man. Yeah. Um, what's your sort of split between men and women at the magazine? Well, I, I, we, we have two female columnists, um, Denise Kingsmill and... Um, our Miranda Kennett, our coach, who's, who's written for us for, for 10 years. Um, and I would kill for another one, you know. They, well, I, I, we, we have Luke Johnson and Howard Davies, and then two. So it's balanced really fairly equally. But it isn't, it isn't, it isn't easy to find them. And I think it's, it has got to do with that, that kind of swagger and that confidence, if you like, that, that you, you know, that maybe an in, inherent male characteristic that you think that whatever you, you've, you've got to say is, is, is worth listening to. And I think maybe it's true that men find that, um, it, you know, it comes to them more naturally. The, the other thing, I mean, the 80-20 statistic that you mentioned really surprises me because it doesn't feel like that to me still at all. Um, in fact, I mean, I, you know, I was on the way up here, I was thinking that that actually I'm not sure it, it is a kind of a massive problem and, and if there was a problem it's being eased and getting better and it doesn't feel to me as a, as a, as a reader of media and a watcher of electronic media and a, and a reader of blogs and things that, that there is a, a massive imbalance I think the voices um, particularly with the advent of social media over the last few years have become more and more which, which is welcome and I don't I don't feel that kind of male predominance there so much, even in those sort of two bastions of, of, of business and politics where more than a decade ago you would quite justifiably have said that there, that there weren't enough women out there. Do you think, I think the issue of Twitter and social media is really interesting. Um, do you think, though, that that same study showed that men, in terms of being quoted on stories as experts, men outnumbered women five to one? And on issues such as, uh, this was the US election, so they did a 12-week study, um, this is actually full for state, did a 12-week study of people um, quoted. And in that survey, it was five times the number of men on all issues to do with the election, including abortion, um, family planning. They, more men were always called. Now, I mean, is this just because, you know, Gabby, when you, as a political editor, were there just more men that you could turn to? Is it just a matter of numbers? They're just more men in the public eye who are experts, or is it because you just, you know, it's hard to think? It is would, there a it, woman? I think it's two things. Some, in some areas, it's you know, if I wanted to quote a pollster, well, of the sort of four or five polling organisations that I could think of, who, where I would have a phone number for the chief pollster, four out of five of them are men. So I could make a deliberate decision to call Deborah Mattinson, who's the only woman, and talk to her. And sometimes I did, but you know, more or less, more often you would go to whoever you think had the right set of, you know, knew about exactly what you were wanted, and you were more likely. That's four out of five, you know, chances that that's going to be a man. But I think there's also a slight mental rolodex thing where you think it's why the same people are quoted over and over and over and over and over and again. Because once you get your name sort of lodged in reporters' consciousness as you're an expert on X, even if you don't really know what you're talking about, and you're easy to get hold of and everyone's got your mobile, <laughs> then, you know, everybody will go to you and you'll turn up in the cuts. So when you're frantically Googling for someone to talk about libel, you know, you'll come to the same people and you'll use them again. I think telly's better, actually. Telly tends to use consciously use a, a, a spread of 
you know, mm. will consciously look for a woman. I'll often get a call saying, you know, we need someone for X programme. And if I say I can't do it, can I recommend someone else? There's always a slight pause where they go, yeah, do you know any women? <laughs> you just think, yeah, mm. okay, you've gone for balance here. <laughs> but, you know, they do make the effort. Just to pick up on something Matthew said about, um, about how much of a problem it is. I don't consider it remotely the biggest problem that we have in terms of what we get on our pages. The thing that worries me most is that it's very difficult for anybody who is poor to get their voice on a page. Uh, it is particularly difficult if they aren't in London, and it is difficult if they're black or they're Asian, anything non-white. And so when we're thinking about who we're going to get to write something, I mean, the last has been particularly interesting in the last 18 months. The Arab Spring has been one of the most dominant topics. And um, you know, how many of us had a really good uh, Egyptian writer uh, 18 months ago who was actually there on the ground and who spoke good English and could turn copy round and all of that? None of us. None of us did. So you're actively seeking people out to, to do those kinds of jobs. But if you actually look at the balance of opinion, uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think it's so much that there is a great shortage of women's voices. And I think one of the reasons that, that you find them much more in areas like you know, the magazines and all the rest of it is because our lives are there too. I mean, I worked from home for 10 years. I was part-time bringing up my children. I was more interested in the things that were written about in other pages that were about bringing up your children in school than I was in some of the more serious things, which people may think reflects very badly on me, but I'm just being honest. And, um, and so I think you have that as well. But if you look at the number of people who actually know about benefits because members of their family are on benefits and who really know about what recession feels like in a very sort of serious way because they are in Oldham and they've been out of work for two years, I think that's a much more serious issue for us. And it's become much more serious in the profession since I joined it because people are much richer who become journalists now. And so you've got a very different group of people coming in, much, much more middle class, much more privately educated than it was when I started. Yeah. And so I think that's a far more serious issue for us to address than actually the numbers of women on the pages. Mm. Liz, do you agree with that? No, that's a really good point, actually. But I wonder how we change that. How do you actually approach someone who's unemployed and, and get them to write that? Because what we do at the moment is quite second-hand, isn't it? You might interview somebody or how do you actually enroll those people to write well, you have to partly you have to hold people's hands. I mean, we did a piece about um, whenever the uh, latest unemployment figures came out, which I think was two weeks ago yesterday, um, and we had been talking to an organisation to see if we could get a, a young person who was in the position where they'd be confident enough to do something, but they'd obviously have to work on it beforehand and we'd have to do something with them, and we did it through the big lottery fund because they've got young advisors helping them with funding projects at the moment on unemployment. Um, but it was that's a very slow process and we knew those figures were coming out. Uh, whereas obviously you don't know that, um, or most of us didn't know that Barclays were, would have been fixing the LIBOR rates and we were going to be looking for somebody to turn that piece around in three hours. And so that, you know, that's a completely different horses for courses thing. Um, but it is hard. Well, well, you can find people... Blogging has at least given people an opportunity to get out there and show they can write. And it has made it slightly easier to source different people. Because it's always it's a massive gamble to take a risk on someone you've who know, you know has a life experience, but you don't know can help. We, at The Guardian, we do a series of um, diversity workshops which are unbelievably time-consuming and where you have literally um, 60 people at a time and groups of editors from comments, from features, 
um, from around the paper to commission them. And at the end of this, it's sort of like a um, you know, round robin of uh, like Dragon's Den for commissioning. And the issue is actually commissioning someone to do a 2,000 word feature for G2 is really hard from that. Getting them to write comment for SIF has been unbelievably successful. One of the things, um, I don't think he's here, I asked on Twitter earlier today if anyone got any questions they can't make tonight, and Stefan Stern um, said, why does it matter, which is I think your point, Matthew, why does it matter about women uh, writing columns in print when online and on Twitter they seem to dominate? Is that true, though? Do you think they dominate, Gabby? You're an avid Twitterer. If you look at the figures, Twitter is more um, used by women than by men. So there are more women on Twitter. But if you look at who sort of dominates Twitter, if you see what I mean, then people who are retweeted, the people with millions of followers, the women with millions of followers are actresses and singers and kind of slabs. And sort of a long way after that come women in public life. People who are constantly retweeted are more likely to be male. Whether that reflects just, you know, who's of interest in, in normal life and they're on Twitter and they get followed, I don't know. But it's not, it's not entirely egalitarian. And the other answer, I think, to, to Stefan is, firstly, that there are things you can say you can't say in 140 <laughs> characters, but also that you get paid to write for newspapers. You don't get paid to tweet or blog. And I'm slightly wary of a solution that says, it's fine, we'll have loads of women just doing it for free in their kitchen, not getting paid for it. And we'll have loads of men having nice, prestigious, well-paid jobs in comment. That's, that's not quite the deal, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. The other thing about if you're writing online, which I never appreciated until I was put in charge of running online, which was um, something of a shock, uh, was I never realised the power of the newspaper until I went to work for online. And the thing that completely staggered me about that was that people can do brilliant things online and do them over and over, you know, a, a thousand million times a day around the world, people will be doing things. Nobody who is actually driving public conversation will see almost any of them. So the impact of them disappears. They're transient. Um, they can be happening in all kinds of different languages. Whereas the, the real sort of shock is there are times when you write things in major newspapers. They fall on the desks of people who decide what is going to appear on Sky News, what is going to appear on the Radio 4 Today program. Uh, they become part of a national conversation in a way that, to me, was a surprise because I thought we'd moved beyond that. A pleasant surprise now that I'm in the job of actually having to fill those pages. But, um, but I don't think we should kid ourselves that it is still true that there are places where the media cycle looks and uh, they, they are looking at certain, there certain pages, they pick certain people up and they go with them. And on the whole, those people are not writing exclusively online. Mm. But doesn't that go back to, I mean, Andrew, the, the point about the seriousness of the topic um, so you may feel as if the world is dominated. Um, you know, you may feel both Matthew and Anne have said it's not an issue. Does it matter if women are mainly writing for magazines, mainly writing online? Well, if actually opinion formers in TV studios and in radio stations get the Times' comment pages, the FTs, and say, there are all these men, let's get them in to talk about it. Isn't that self-perpetuating? You just get more men. That is men. one reason why, the, why it's important to have more women on the pages. And I do think that the, the championing of new voices ought to be something that comment editors are doing. To the social media point, I mean, I think if I were doing the, the job I was doing 10 years ago now, with Twitter being particularly more of a source, that would potentially, if I had the time, and there is this question of time for comment editors that's worth bearing in mind, comment editors aren't 
sitting with their feet back browsing new, new prospects. They're editing, they're commissioning, they're doing a lot of the, the kind of work in the day that uh, fills up the part of the day when you could be searching for those new prospects. But it would open the way to new names to me in a way that um, wasn't necessarily as easy to do 10 years ago when you had that sort of self-perpetuation. I think it's also true, obviously, from the TV point of view, as Gabby's mentioned, um, that TV does make more of an effort to make sure that commentator, that they have a balance of commentators on by gender, by, by ethnicity, um, by diversity of opinion. I mean, my memory of, of 10 years ago on the FT, obviously during the Bush administration, was that we were more concerned about the diversity of political comment, particularly from the US, and reducing the, or balancing out the amount of liberal comment that we had had and liberal commentators that we built up than we were about gender or other issues in, in that particular area. As well, that I just want to tease out because the commissioning editors have talked about how they try to be gender blind and it's about the topic. And, and you've all mentioned the sort of sometimes there's a lack of um, uh, confidence, self confidence, whether that's you know, on the middle class women may not suffer as much as uh, working class men, for example. Liz, do you, do you feel that's ever been an issue for you as a woman? I mean, have you ever been faced with sort of commissioning editors that you have to say, Please let me write for you. Let me do this. Or do you think that's the same whether you're a man or a woman? Well, I never put myself forward to be a columnist. Um, I didn't have the confidence. Um, and I get lots of young people approaching me now saying, how do I get a column? How do I get a column? Well, it took me 30 years. <laughs> you have to have some... You build it gradually. You build your experience and you, you draw on events in your life. I never thought I would be writing columns in newspapers because I just didn't think I was worth it. So I think that my columns come from a place of incredible doubt and confusion with the world. I don't pretend I know how things work. And I think, you know, one of the best columnists is Christopher Hitchens, and he showed that actually he could change his mind. You know, and I think that's very important. We don't have all the answers, obviously, because look at what's going on at the moment. So, and I also think that women don't really like being disliked when they write comment pieces. They want you to love them. And they're good mums, and they never smoke while they were pregnant, and they love their husbands. And they're very unwilling to offend either those close to them or mm. David Cameron or, or whoever. But, you know, there was that famous thing about the pie tax. And I wrote about this woman on the Huffington Post and she was just writing a column. So you all thought she was a good person. We shouldn't attack poor people who eat hot food. But that's not the point of a columnist. You don't want people to think you're a nice person. You want them to think about that issue. So I think that is more what separates, rather than numbers, is that women like to be liked and to be popular. Whereas men like Rod Little, for example... <laughs> for perhaps, example. <laughs> he perhaps wouldn't care that you didn't like him, because he goes he's out of his way. Right. Isn't it? I mean, the, the columnists that I like the most are people like Rod, who are just outrageous, who push it... <laughs> who push it to the absolute limit and you, you, you reach the end of their 
piece and you think you, you really can't have written that surely and believe it. Um, and he, and he, it would it, would, I do like Liz's column. Even when I don't agree with her, I always think, no, she's not, that's not fake, that's not insincere. That's, whereas Rod, I just think, you sat down and gone, what can I piss people off most by saying this? And partly, and this is a real change in comment that's been driven by digital, I think, is that now, because you can now tell, you can't just, we used to be able to survey the readers and say, do you like X columnist? And they'd say yes or no. Now, you can count how many clicks each column gets on the website, and you can get your columnists competing against each other for how many clicks they get on the website. And if you write a piece saying, you know, why I hate my wife by Rod Little, or why I think Harriet, why wouldn't shag Harriet Harman, you're going to get, which was a red little column, you, you will get, you know, millions of clicks. And if you write a clever reasoned argument about the ins and outs of law reform, you won't. So as a columnist, you're driven towards taking more extreme. outrageous and extreme it, it, positions. It, it, it and that, for many women, is not comfortable. But it's it, kind it, of, then it, it can go terribly wrong, as with Samantha Brick, who yeah. wrote, yeah. I'm too pretty and people give me champagne on aeroplanes. You cannot just write from how can I wind people up today because mm. it, it's just very short-lived and actually it's counterproductive. But it, it is difficult to be arresting and to get people's attention by being balanced. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, but it that, has I mean, to come from a place that you actually believe. I've, I've always thought, it's interesting, the four columnists I've got, none of them really are, are, are hacks, are professional hacks. They're all mm. do it... Um, I, you know, uh, because the, because they enjoy doing it, and they're rather good at writing. And it, 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 uh, it, it's interesting that in Howard Davis's case, he was famously described by the Economist as a as a man almost entirely unencumbered by self doubt, and he and he is. Um, so, and and uh, of course, when when you when you read somebody like that, you don't have to agree with them. But it, but it's the challenge, isn't it? It's the fact that they're in there and they're needling and and mixing it up that, that, that makes them readable. You don't, you don't have to agree with people that, that you enjoy reading. And often when you've come yeah, to you the end of a Rod Little... There's some sort of truth in what they're saying. Yes, they're you do. Yeah. Yeah. Saying, I hate David Cameron because he went to read. There has to be some truth to it. And that's where it was a mistake with Samantha Britt because it was patently ridiculous. Therefore, she became sort of a sacrificial lamb, yes. in a way, to figures. Do you think she did it to be controversial? No. I don't, I mean, I, I, I just... It's a slightly I separate think she question. Got, I think no. she got caught up yeah, in something she couldn't quite control, didn't she? And didn't, wasn't quite... My guess is that nobody... The underlying premise of this event is not that there are not enough women saying whether or not they like their husbands in newspapers. There are loads of women columnists who are writing stuff about themselves, their lives, punchy, powerful, opinionated, all of that. I mean, the male has always had, as its major columnist, has always had very, very strong women columnists. That has always been out there. My understanding is really that what we're, what we're looking at is whether or not, in the same way that there are not that many women at the very top of public life, whether there is effectively some kind of glass ceiling in comment pages, whether or not we don't go out and find you know, the Elora Finlays to write about health and the Vicky Prices to write about economics and these kinds of people. And, um, and within that, in that, which is to a certain extent a numbers game, that's what we are talking about partly. When I started in the job um, about three years ago, uh, 
the editor used to had always said before he didn't he ne never liked the pages not having a woman on the page. He did not like having all male comment pages, um, and that and it shouldn't happen. And we have got quite a lot of regular women columnists on the Times, like you know Rachel Sylvester, Camilla Cavendish, Janice Turner, uh, people who do write about politics, who do write about serious bits of business, kind of alpha topics in that way. Um, but we do go out to find people. We do honestly um, actually look for them very specifically. Sometimes we think we haven't had any women who are writing about this, or we've notice so and so and we will go out and try and find them um, so it is partly that but the weeks in which I will not have many women on the comment pages are half terms and school holidays Mm. And in those weeks, all the people who I would use who are outside, I mean, we use, um, say, Bronwyn Maddox, who's the editor of Prospect, who's somebody who used to write for us before she did that and she'll come in, or Emma Duncan, who's the deputy editor of The Economist. Um, well, they're also on holiday in those weeks. So right now, we are sitting looking at the summer holidays, thinking, how are we going to balance? Where are we going to find people? Here, but yeah. I will just say, um, I'm a freelance. <laughs> I will just say, I am is, a freelance, not in a job offer term. But, but actually, that that's does where happen. That is what, that's what we're really doing. We're really doing that because in the real world we have and we have a lot of our columnists our female columnists work part-time large number Camilla Rachel is, is, your child's Alice, not school you know. yet are you I mean that's what mine is no mine is but there is if you're talking about that July and August time I think actually that's probably the best time of the year for to go out and find new female columnists the first op-ed I ever did after leaving because I had never done op-ed I had always done straight factual the first time I ever did op-ed was because the Guardian rang me up after I'd left the Observer in August and said Christ all our columnists away can you write a column and I thought I don't know we'll have to go and see <laughs> and it turns out possibly yes but you know there is that period where all your regular columnists go away and you need you need to find someone different that I think frankly commissioning editors could make the but most other of. Other women have also gone away just as I used to go away when I had school-aged children mine have grown up now but you know that is a serious real-life issue Issue is that there are far fewer women around to write all at exactly the same time of course and why do we have more of our women working part-time because they are to work it's more time. work in summer than at any other yeah, time no, of I'm year sure that's true. because <laughs> your regular people are away not all women go away and also what, what came as a surprise last year when Kira Cochran wrote did a study it was a, a sort of very straightforward counted bylines in the media all the different <laughs> titles seven titles every day and what I think surprised us is in the media, I mean, well, The Guardian came out worse than The Mail in this count of bylines. In the media, we like to think, and we do, have unbelievably flexible jobs. We're very lucky. We can actually work from our beds if we really want to. You know, we need a telephone and an internet connection. Flexibility is built into what we do, unless you are a commentator that has to be there all the time. And even then, you have flexibility. We're not... M&A bankers that are there at 3 o'clock in the morning. So why are these things about childcare, which I completely agree with you, um, are a big issue, why is it, though, that we can't work around them in an area of, of public life, the media, in which it should be so easy? Someone must have an answer. Op-ed is phenomenally, having done both, compared to being a reporter, comment is unbelievably flexible, unbelievably working mother friendly, unbelievable. I mean, you can do it from home. It's not a full time 70 hour a week job. It's not, you know, it is fantastically more flexible than news. I don't buy that as a reason for having fewer female columnists. If anything, I think column is a perfect job for women who don't want to be in a newsroom from because it doesn't have the it doesn't have the same unpredictability it doesn't have the same liability of being sent off to Washington at five minutes notice and it doesn't involve the same presenteeism I don't buy that as, an, as a reason 
I used to edit Marie Claire. I had 30 women working for me. Oh, they literally drove me insane. I mean, they were diff you, you know, even the young ones, you'd nurture them, you'd phone them up, and I could name her, and you'd say, can you fly from New York to Los Angeles to interview so-and-so? No, I'm not going unless it's business. Or another writer, no, I've got to go and walk the dog, and I've got to go and get... Literally drove me insane. But come on, though, you, you two, you've commissioned lots of men. That happens with men too, doesn't it? Where you go, can you do this, and they are not available. Are we talking here about outside contributors or...? or Both. I mean, Both. Uh, People that work, work for I mean, clearly there, there are. I mean, there are men who will put, impose demands on when they can do things. There are men also who will step to it and turn, turn round the, the column that you want on the day that you want it straight off. I, I agree with Gabby. I think it probably it is the has the flexibility and I still think that actually certainly speaking for myself when I was comment editor I don't think that we that I went out enough and I'm not just take making a sort of gender point here but to find new voices mm. for the pages we were although we weren't taking that 95% um, in tray of unsolicited material the thing that surprised me was how many of those pieces needed to be read because they were by literally some of them by Nobel Prize winners who you had to say, well, even if I'm not going to read this immediately, they're bound to call me tomorrow to say, have I read it? So you, you, we, there was an onslaught of incoming unsolicited material, and it probably prevented me in that role doing enough outreach, more outreach that I expected to do, you know, discovering new, new people. And yeah. arguably, it needs a little bit of that proactive search to go on at the same time as taking bankers as in bankers not as in Bob Diamond bankers but bankers as in bankable writers who you know have written before most of whom will be men in the case of the outside commentators that that we look at. I haven't heard that used as in that way for a while now. Um, now Liz you, do you must have a problem with trolls or do you just ignore them? Do I have a problem, problem with, with the people commenting? Well I don't read the comments. Uh. I get <laughs> I don't have time. Yeah. Seriously. Um, and I think you can't be swayed by people. And I get lots and lots of emails as well. Um, I don't know. It's very easy to be nasty when you're anonymous, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Like I, 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 I made a very generalised comment about living in Somerset, and we were talking earlier about <coughs> single living, single women going to the countryside. I, a very general comment about men in Somerset. And then the Telegraph published all these very specific comments about me. So, you know, it's very easy to be quite nasty. And I don't think I am nasty about anyone in specific, specifically, apart from Hadley Freeman. <laughs> and she, I mean, uh, what I wanted to touch on today was why women are so vile to each other, really, in press. And she wrote a piece in The Guardian about saying that I was bitter and label-loving. But normally I would let that go. So then I wrote a piece in The, in the Man on Sunday, and I thought the editor would cut it out, but he left it in. And I said that she's bald and overconfident. So this started this sort of war. <laughs> but, you know, you've got, to have quite a, you've got to have a bit of a thick skin. And to my mind, if I can write about issues that perhaps get certain subjects addressed, 
such as anorexia, CCTV cameras in abattoirs, whatever it is, that's important. I think what you have to do is you have to have a sort of higher, higher calling, really, of what you want to achieve and what you want to change, mm. rather than it, this being endless point scoring by women who are worried that you earn more than they do. I don't, I don't think it puts people off. Um, and, you know, Louise Mensch is launching Mention, and, and, I, and I asked her um, whether she would write about it. Um, and, uh, and, she, and I asked her also whether or not she'd launched it partly because she had had such vicious responses on Twitter. And she said, no, I absolutely love Twitter. I love everything about it. I've got no problem with any of that. And I think it goes back to what Matthew said and what lots of school teachers will say, which is that women, lots of women like to be liked and lots of men let the kind of criticism go, you know, go off their back a bit. But when you first started having um, online comments, the men and women writers were equally shocked. I mean, partly because people would say things, obviously, that said something wasn't true and they thought yes but I never said it was so that there's the sort of always that sort of frustration um, but also it, it became more vituperative and it's certainly Twitter uh, is much more um, it's, it's just much coarser than anything else but that isn't really the field in which people who are writing about a lot of the kind of big big subjects of the day that's not the main thing they'll get comments back on the website but you can deal with them and I mean you can go in and you can answer them and normally people say quite nasty things I mean we don't get it because uh, people are subscribers who come and so that you get a very different kind of conversation going on and they're not anonymous anonymous um, any of those things um, but if somebody has said something about one of the writers either the writer themselves or myself or one of my colleagues we'll go in and say thanks very much for you know what you said about this but we're a bit surprised about X and did you think and people do what we all do instantly which is say oh it's very nice of you to come back and talk to me thank you very much indeed didn't really mean to be that nasty to them after all um, and and everybody sort of calms down and um, but it, it 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 isn't I wouldn't say for a second it's the thing I don't think it's what stops people putting themselves forward in, in those sorts of ways. And I think in some ways, actually, we are a rather more um, easy sort of a world to work in than actually being out there on Twitter, which is it's just much tougher. Um, some more people with questions. Is this lady here? And I think it's Charlie put his hand up at the back as well. <laughs> I mean, just following up on that, Anne, I, 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 I'm not sure whether women are but, you know, less robust about what's said about them, but I am pretty sure that the kind of things that are said to them and about them when they put forward robust opinions are kind of different from what's said to and about the men. In the days before comment is free, when the Guardian helpfully used to publish an email address at the bottom of a column, you would get this stuff. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. If we're brave enough. Yeah. But you'd get this stuff unmediated, and the kind of thing that, that I would get would, particularly around the kind of Iraq war stuff, mm -hmm. were things like, I hope your daughter gets raped and murdered yeah. by the Taliban. Now, I'm not sure that someone would say that to a male columnist. I, they, this they is a very, do. very gender-specific. They specific. really do say, I mean, I agree they I'm say sure they say unpleasant things, things but I think that there are gender, unpleasant gender-specific yes, well, yeah. insults, which yeah. are yeah. quite unpleasant. Yeah, that's I, I would say... There's, there's slightly more sexual stuff that gets directed yeah. at women than at men. I think there is vitriol and viciousness and horrible, awful things said to both sexes. Mm. I think women get slightly more... Women get slightly more... It's not the worst stuff, but it's, there's a lot of 
there, there, dearie, or, you know, what would you know, or just write something about your byline picture rather than write something, you know, there's a lot of, I find being patronised worse than death yeah. threats on the whole, yeah. <laughs> having had both. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, and I think that is, because that is the thing that you think, death threats come from loonies, that's kind of, you know, you're a loony, that's fine. Um, whereas patronising you and thinking yeah. you don't know what you're talking about, because you're a woman. That's a, there's a little tiny bit of that in lots of people, and that's why I find that more upsetting. But I agree with, with Anne, it's not the reason people don't do it, because if you are the kind of person who thinks that you've got something to say and you want the world to hear it, yeah. then you're a columnist. And if you're that kind of person, you're not bothered if someone who says that you should, yeah, shut up. Andrew, do you ever worry about the viciousness of that I've never had a death threat for a column, but that is mainly because I write about things like supply chain management, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> HR. <laughs> Uh, and, gonna, I'm very, gonna, and I'm very happy to have push it a bit. Yeah, yeah I've <laughs> got to push that. I'm very happy to get, get comments. But I know that there are colleagues who get more comments um, and don't read them. I'm quite surprised by that because actually I think the ability to engage with readers. But again, I'm talking about readers who are in some sense screened by the um, registration walls. We, 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 we're getting, a, I think, a reasonably high level of of comment, but you know, that, I, I think part of the debate is getting in there. I don't know whether it deters women from contributing on serious topics with the FT. I, I somehow doubt that with ours. But the commenters criticise other people who've been rude as well. Yeah. I mean, the self-policing okay. thing is really interesting. And when well, obviously the comment is free, they don't. Well, they, but you don't. It's not moderated either, is it? Is it hugely much? Totally it's just not pre-moderated. Pre so what happens is anything can go on. And then if it's really foul and abusive, you can see, I completely disagree about Twitter. I think Twitter is literally an echo chamber of people you like best and who are really interesting and lovely. So, you know, if I say, what do you want to say today? They've got lovely things to say. You know, you write something in The Guardian, and of course, we are very much encouraged because we believe in engaging uh, with the readers. Um, but sometimes, you know, I wrote something about, um, about women yesterday in which one about the BBC Director General, and one of the comments was literally, Oh, next you'll be asking for a one-legged black lesbian midget to be appointed to director. Now, if you're a reader of The Guardian, you would not necessarily be writing those comments. So, so, you know, you do get a whole range of people commenting. I have been constantly taken before, mostly when I was working in news, because my name, Gabby, is a unisex name, it can be male or female. So because I rarely had a photo byline when I was working in news, probably three-quarters of the post emails or anything else I received came to Mr. Gabby Hinsliff, and people addressed me as man because they assumed that if you're a political editor, you're a man, probably a middle-aged man. And I can remember several times when I met people or when they suddenly worked out that... And you can literally see the, like, double-take. So I think it does... I think it does effect and you know people would change people would write to me in, in terms assuming I was a man and I'd write back and it would become clear that I wasn't and there would be an immediate change in the tone so yeah I think it does make a difference if you're if if the other question was also would it matter if there was 80% women writing and 20% men yes I think it would because I think you'd still you'd have that sense that a male perspective was being sidelined and you'd also have the worry that none of us have talked about but which is what it's absolutely about at the end which is that you know have you got the right people I think it matters in one crucial respect for your regular columnists, which is I think that if you have people who have built up an audience over a period of time, readers develop an affinity with them. And in fact, readers write 
when they write to the regular columnists, they'll write with real affection and they love the exchange with them um, on the website. You know, they, it's, it's, it's a very intimate thing to do. And so if you feel that you're being given a little bit of a kind of showing of the ankle into somebody's life as well as into their views, which you do get, and you get that from all columnists over time, they write different kinds of pieces, then I think that you, you build up a different picture of them from that. So I do think it, I do think it does make a difference who you see there. But nothing matters like quality. Nothing matters like whether they're interesting, whether they know stuff, whether they can write, whether they're funny. Everything that really matters, the top line, is about quality. You raise it, I mean, a slightly different point, which goes to the perpetuation or self-perpetuation of the, the group, is that it is very traumatic to change columnists, and not just for the columnist. I mean, I had to do this in, in comment. Very esteemed FT colleague, still writing, I had to tell him that he was no longer going to be on the op-ed page. He could continue to write, but he wouldn't be on the op-ed page. It was very difficult to do, and actually it was the wrong decision for this particular, in this particular individual's case. But the, the, so the change of columnist is tricky, and quite, it's quite frequent, at least in my experience, that when, you do, when columnists do change, they sometimes change again within six months because it doesn't quite work out. And so I wonder whether some of the rootedness of male columnists is to do with the fact that, that editors are very reluctant mm. to make those changes and they see, because there is also an affinity between the columnist and the reader which they don't want to tinker with. Um, Andrew St George, I'm an author. Um, I, I'd like to just, uh, well there's one comment and one question. I, I think we need to think more broadly about how people get their views across. Um, I follow a city commentator called Louise Cooper, whom I first heard on PM. I wrote to her and said, fantastic, I've never heard the Greek debt situation put out as clearly as that. She said, great, get onto my, get onto my mailing list. Um, and she broadcasts astute uh, uh, city commentary, capital markets, extraordinary uh, acute uh, morning and sometimes morning and afternoon. So that's an area we haven't really uh, covered, and that's to do, that's in, in line with what Matthew's been talking about, where there's someone who has a day job but is also, and is also expert at writing. And the second, uh, so that's, that's just another way of getting comment. Um, the question I, I wanted to put was, if, if we were all businesses, we would look at our, our clients, our, our, our readers. Um, Marks and Spencer, for example, has 80% female customers, 66% female staff, uh, fewer on the board. Um, how are we responding in, in women, in terms of women uh, com commissioned to write, in terms of the number of readers? I know the, the, uh, the male has 52% female readership. Um, how, is that something that should drive this? You're looking at me. I, I feel like somebody else should answer first. But um, it, I mean, the male has more female readers than any other paper, any other the national papers. Um, I mean, this, we touched upon this, we didn't really discuss it. You know, do readers want to read a diverse array of voices? Now, we could put, have everyone put your hands up in a moment, but I would actually say most readers actually just read what's in front of them and they don't think, oh, I must find a woman to do this or I must find someone who's black or working class or has this issue. What you end up doing is going, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't think of that. Um, so in terms of doing sort of reader survey, I... I think if you asked readers of The Guardian, I would, I think, you know, does it matter? Most of them say no, as long as it's good. It, the, the Anne's point, it needs to be good. If you then say, does it matter if 
the whole of the media is controlled by white middle-aged middle-class men and I think quite a lot of them would say yes I mean I suppose you could do a poll of the audience um, you know if you do you mind would you mind if everything you read was um, written by men and, and do you mind if you don't, if you sort of see loads of things written by women? I mean, do you, do you sort of have a, a preference? Would it stop you buying a newspaper such as the FT? Uh, if you're really interested in finance, but everything that was written in the FT, although you can't tell the byline sexist because there's so many um, fabulously uh, exotic names in the FT. Uh, you know, if you thought that's a man again, it's another Martin, uh, would that stop you buying the FT? Well, the FT is bang in line with your 80-20 male-female columnists and op-ed writers, I'm sorry to say. possibly be true. It is true. I'm they don't have a single, single, you don't have a single woman who is a regular columnist. No, I'm talking about the readership. On the FT, no, but in terms of the actual columnists, if you're looking at the audience thing, I mean, it is staggering that. Um, that um, I mean, it really is surprising. I, I can almost tell you everyone you've had in the last few months. You had Andrea Ledson today. I thought, blimey. Um, but it is a very, very male thing. But it's about, it's, it's entirely about quality. And the real thing is, if you look at the size of pieces on these pages, we are asking our readers to invest quite a substantial amount of their time in reading a piece of 1,100 words. It's a big ask. And we have to do everything possible to make them think, I am not going to turn that page over without reading that piece. So they've got to think that it's got a headline that says, you've got to read this now if you want to know about this. It's today, it's the subject we're talking about. It's got to have a name where you have some kind of name recognition, either because this is somebody who's a significant person, they've had a significant experience, or you know them as a regular writer, and it's got to be well written. And otherwise, we have no right to expect you to stop. Because this is the area of the paper that has the biggest pieces in it. And so everything about that has to, it has to meet that, that mark. Otherwise, you're going to pass on by. And we've completely failed. I totally agree with that, but it's absolutely about quality. I don't want to read. It doesn't, frankly, if I buy the FT, it's because I want the FT for something that day. I'm not then going to throw it into the gutter in disgust because there's no female columnist. But I think that the issues of quality and representation are linked. <laughs> I think that it's not about saying let's get some women, any old women to write any old toss and shove it in the paper. It's about saying if you have 95% of your columnists are male and 5% are female, are you entirely confident, just as it's about this in any other walk of life, whether it's about women in the boardroom or women in any profession, it's about saying if 95% of them are male, are you convinced that 95 of the best possible writers on FT subjects are all men, just happens to be that way, or could you possibly be missing some? It's not about getting women in for the sake of it. It's about ensuring quality, as Anne says. But I think part of ensuring quality is to be sure that you're not just fishing from a small pool of people who you know, who look like you, feel like you, sound like you, are you went to school with them. And I think that has to be um, what drives it. Picking up on that last point, my name's Sue. I'm from a company called Catalyst. One of the things we do is work with women in leadership positions in capital markets and in the technology and operations functions. So it's a very, very niche market. Depressingly, there aren't as many of those people as, as I would like. I really struggle with the whole issue. How do we avoid the, the issue that it matters, the issue that the most important thing about me is that I'm female? I don't really think it is. Um, how do we avoid the because you're a woman bit? How do we avoid quotas? How do we avoid ironically confirming the very problem that we're trying to address, i.e., 
you know, you resolve it by having more women because they're women, as opposed to having more people because they're good. So it, it's the because you're a woman bit that worries me. I would not, for instance, be in favor of quotas for women on boards. I would find that insulting. I find positioning the idea of talking to women about their leadership roles quite challenging because if somebody came up to me and said, you're a woman, you need leadership development, I'd probably thump them. So <laughs> how do we avoid the because you're a woman thing confirming the exact thing that we're trying to avoid? So positive discrimination. Well, I think it goes to Anne's point about quality. I mean, that, that my 95.5 example was the intray of incoming submissions. And I don't think it's changed that more than half, possibly more than two-thirds, possibly more than 80% of those submissions aren't worth publishing. So quality first, and then it's a choice between the, the outstanding submissions and also, of course, the, you know, going out to find the people who are good but who haven't put themselves forward. If we're back to this issue of, of addressing people who are good and not submitting articles for the FT, even though they have the expertise, I think that's the, that's the way to address it, rather than saying, we've got to pick now from the remaining ones on a basis of 50-50, for example. That does seem to me to be a quota which I wouldn't approve of either. Can I, uh, it seems to me, though, the really important point of this, which we haven't really talked about, is that, that sort of sense of um, familiarity. So I, as a commissioning editor, you know that if that the, in your inbox is someone you know that you've seen and you've touched on it, if it's someone you know has written 1,200 words and you haven't had to do much editing, put that one in, call that... And it's nearly always a man because, actually, there are more men in public life doing big jobs, working in industry like Simon Wolfson. If, if you don't have at least a lens, not quotas necessarily, but if you don't have a lens that says, let's try to find the person just to give them, it's hard and it takes longer. But will it ever change? Yeah, but we, don't, we take almost nothing that's offered to us. I mean, almost nothing. So... Um, it, but you, well, yes and no a bit. So um, I'm, I don't know on this issue of sort of quotas. I, I know what you're saying about this because then people will say, well, you only got her because. But uh, when we were in that position where the editor was concerned, we're not there now because we have more, more women on the pages. But this is partly, I think, because there were days when we would think, if we don't have any, we haven't got any of our women writers around this week. And actually, we did, I did go out to find whether there were women who would write about certain things. Would we have got Deanne Julius? I don't know that we would have done if we hadn't been doing that. I, I mean, so I do think that it makes you look in places that you haven't looked before if one of the things you're asking yourself in the day and looking across the of writers is, you know, do we have enough women having, having their opinions on, expressed on our pages? But it's a hunt. You're out there, you know, it's a predatory activity doing this business. It's not a receptive activity. You, you think, I heard a woman who was on the radio who um, ran off what, if that's what it's still called, um, and she was from uh, Northern Ireland, and she was on the Today programme, and I thought, you are great. So I rang up her, you know, press person and said, um, I just heard her, she's fantastic, and she said, and he said, she's got no time, and I said, well, I'd like to ask her if she's got no time, and, um, and she said, I'm up for this, and she was, she was really, really good, and, and I was pleased, I was more pleased because she was a woman, 
That's, am I just being honest about that? I genuinely was, just as I was thrilled to see that that woman physicist who was running the CERN laboratory was, you know, it was an Italian woman physicist today, and I thought, woo, that's pretty good. Um, so I think if you, do, if you do look, you do find, but you shouldn't be unrealistic about the fact that if you say you're doing lots of politics stuff, we've had a lot of the class of 2010 politicians write for us because a lot of them seem really bright. There are more men in the House of Commons. And you are going to, you know, you are going to get your Liz Trusses, you are going to get your Andrew Ledsons, but you're also going to get your Jesse Normans and your Sandy Javids. You're going to get lots of men along that other way. Mm. One really practical thing, um, and I really throw this out, someone who's more of a social, social media entrepreneur than me would already have done this, but um, in America there's a site called SheSource.com, which is literally just like a list of female experts on any subject and you can type in blah 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 whatever you want astrophysics or whatever it is you want to know about and it's a list of female experts who will do media so we'll do broadcast or we'll do whatever and why the hell someone has not set up something similar over here at minimal cost julia that just lists that just lists you know that so there's no longer any excuse to say because everybody has their little database you know woman's hour never has trouble finding a woman to speak on whatever subject they might be doing today whether that's libel or whether that's knitting you know it's not that they don't exist and every single media outlet has their own little database of their preferred people and between those which they don't share with each other for obvious reasons and between those databases is a whole load of chairman of off work that no that nobody knows could do this or would do this so actually to collect all of those together in one place would i feel be a public service and would help the whole issue of sort of just getting people not even to write something but to quote on something which is right. it is a risk to commission somebody you don't know who you think might be good but might not be good and then if they turn up you know they turn in 1,100 rubbish words, you're stuffed. You, you can do gone. almost, so you can, I mean, as long as you've got quite flexible deadlines, though, you can do a heck of a lot with copy. I mean, you've just got to make sure it's still got somebody's voice, but I know, as long as they've got something to say, I mean, I, I think if they haven't got something to say, then you're done for, um, and if people can't express an opinion, but, you know, you, you have to find somebody and say, you know, what do you want to say, and that's the crucial thing. They have to know that, but women who you do talk to in these jobs, you know, like most people, they do have, they do know what they want to say. It's just that they, you know, they're not, they're not as likely necessarily to come through to you in that way you were describing. I agree with you that your inbox is men, but I, as I say, I think we take almost nothing out of, out of the kind of well, Also, intro. you'd be surprised at how, how poor the raw copy of some of these authoritative men is when it comes in. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes on for some even Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> Um, Julia's got a question. Well, the slight elephant in the room for me is this question about what women write about. So on the one hand, there's the parity argument that, of course, you must go and hunt out and promote yourself if you're a woman that's got something to say that a man could say and that there's certain articles that you could read with no byline, as indeed we do in The Economist every week. But Liz Jones is a phenomenal columnist because she's Liz Jones, and most of the time you write very personally about yourself and your life. And this is seen as lesser. People are snobby about you, as you well know. They think you may be best-selling, but you're not quite what my grandmother would call echt. You're not as you know, serious as the men. And this, it seems to me, is women's problem, which is when they write as themselves as women, they are taken less seriously when they write in a genderless way. Well, first of all, I think it might be useful to know how a column comes about. So 
for my Sunday newspaper column on a Friday morning, I email my suggestions to the mail editor and they will choose one. And I may want to write about animals in the Olympic opening ceremony, but they want me to write about something else. And I would say nine times out of 10, they will choose um, I killed my dad, shall I kill my mum, over what do I think of the banking crisis? Because it sells newspapers. But I think the job of a writer is through, same as an artist like Edward Munch, who the screen, that was, he painted that picture because of his own depression. And I don't think you can be an artist unless you draw on stuff that you know about and that you've experienced, but also you need to make a bigger point about the world or about caring for your mum and she's 92 and she's rotting in her bed and shall I kill her or shall I not kill her? So it's a very personal thing to write about my mum and I have to say it's very costly because none of my family talk to me, none of my friends talk to me, no one will be seen with me, no one will ring me up no, because I put it in the newspaper. And I've been very ruthless about that, mainly through fear because I thought to succeed I have to be the best, I have to be sensationalist, I have to put myself out there. I never held anything back because I was always scared of being sacked. But I do think through being personal you can make really interesting comments about the National Health Service, about what it is to grow old, about what it is to have your husband leave you, about what it is to have no money. You can still get in through the back door and I think you can, I don't see why it's lesser. I don't, I don't I understand why it's lesser. That's you did say hardcore. You should know I'm dead. Yeah, I did, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's lesser anymore. I think it's because um, I don't think it's. It's seen quite in that way. It was only about this morning. Wrote about yeah. going to the school yeah. playground and in the race in the races. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, she does because she does both of those sorts of things. Yeah. One of the reasons, Julia, is that. Um, you know, uh, 25 years ago, the Times used to publish the naval defence estimates. Uh, we used to write about things that were over their subjects, and newspapers did that, and there was a huge distance between um, the, 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 the reader, if you like, and the actual subject and the way that it was portrayed. And um, partly through the advent of you know, television, 24-hour news, all the things people are familiar with, we now write about the right-up here, close and personal subjects. And entertainment as an industry has, in the same time, absolutely blossomed. And the value of, you know, Catelyn Moran. I mean, Catelyn Moran's, you know, celebrity watch, or Catelyn's called columns those kinds of things are massively valuable to the paper and so if you say they're less serious are you less likely to be on the today program with them yes but that doesn't mean they're less serious to the newspaper or to the newspaper's readers and so in that measure I think people haven't got that they don't think one's lowbrow and one's highbrow I think they, uh, they think, are you, are you brilliant? Do you tell me stuff? Do you make me laugh and cry? Uh, you know, are you incisive? Are you, are all, the, all these things that we value in people who we read. But if you look at the people, if you look at salaries, which are a weird thing in you know, newspaper business, there's no proper structures or anything, the people who will be amongst the very best paid will be those people who you would say, therefore, were doing something lesser. And they aren't doing anything lesser, I don't think, in the eyes of the readers or the people who employ them. Because of social media, because of the television, because of the way we now live our lives, 
that actually that demand for personal experience is going to get greater for being sort of feeling like you're somebody's friend. No, I don't mean, I, I, I probably explained myself badly. What I really mean is that we, we have moved into, we now cover things that weekly magazines and weekly newspapers used to cover in a daily newspaper every day and uh, six times during the day on, uh, you know, on the iPad and on the Android phone and in all these other places. So everything about the way we operate has moved away from the idea that we could tell people that yesterday the Naval Defence Estimates were published. So, because that's not very interesting. And also it's, it's just not part of people's lives. So I don't think it'll make people do more of that. I think we have done more of that sort of stuff. We, we've done much more kind of close up and personal Personal because we are we don't think anymore that we have a role in order to describe a world that's so distant but it's really because of the amount of news that's out there I think the concern's not that it's lesser and not I mean I always 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 without fail read Liz's you column you magazine column because it's just so totally gripping and because it's like it's almost like storytelling um, like a narrative that you follow and you become completely immersed in it and I don't think that's lesser or less important, and certainly it's more enjoyable than a lot of the stuff I plough through for work. But what I do worry about it is that as a... Especially given what you just said, actually, is that if... How... For women, how long-lasting a career can it be to write about yourself and your own life? If you write, a, you know, a high-minded column about the Naval Reserve, then, OK, you know, you might be fired for being boring, but you can um, probably you can continue that for a long time. If you write about economics, well, there's always going to be economics to write about. But if you specialise in your own life, does there come a point where you've either, you can't stand doing, you've either sort of mined all the interesting stuff out of it and you can't stand doing it anymore, or you, it takes such a toll on your life and the people around you that you have to stop doing it. I just worry that it's um, a slightly exploitative direction to push female writers into. Are they being pushed into it though? I mean, what, why is it that more women, as you said, write this sort of personal experience stuff? Male columnists who do it, you know, the Tim Dowling types and yeah. Robert Crampton types, who oh, yeah. there are men who do that now as well. Just, just personally, I don't think men do it as well as women. <coughs> I don't. I mean, Giles Corran will never say he's not having sex with his wife because she just had a baby. You know, they'll do it, they'll do it to well, a degree. It's an honesty, isn't it? Because Tim, who I love, I think you're never quite sure if it really did happen like that. Um, so, but that's, I, personally, I don't mind because of the way he writes it. It's funny. Um, it, it's an honesty, isn't it? It is a sort of that personal experience, no holds bars. Why don't men do that? Andrew, Matthew, why don't you write those things? Well, I think some men, as, as you've said, I think some men do write those yeah. things. Who, do, who, do, who does it? Who does it? That's good. Well, we've mentioned we've mentioned a couple. I mean, Satnam used to write quite personal. He used to go out and say, "I'm just going to experience this." Rather the same point you made no, about the bikini. The same, that's not quite um, the same, I don't think. And then expose a bit of himself, less than Liz exposed this morning, but the, but still a part of his sort of personal, um, you know, personal personal side. But um, I, I thought Liz's column pointing out that men are more po-faced about this, that they prefer to stay sort of aloof from it, was quite accurate. I mean, take Gillian Tett, for example. She writes two columns, as you may know, or more than two a week. But one is very much in that expertise, deep expertise for a deeply expert audience. And the other one, in the Saturday magazine, is more personal. And she introduces more about her family. It's nothing like the, the, the absolute exposure of Liz's column or the um, or some of the other writers we've, we've mentioned. But it does 
suggest that there's more, she's more comfortable with that than I would be, possibly. Mm. And I, I'm not sure why that is. But Look at magazines. I mean, there are women's magazines dozens of them that are full of my life real stories and there are men's magazines I don't read many men's magazines who are full of women without many clothes on I think but you know if you look at the covers but it's you know that's not what men buy and it's not what they tend to read and that's not what they you know it, it, we we have different tastes to a certain extent you know there, there are you know, if you look at that sort of plethora and that spread the true life stories magazines are read predominantly by women. And I mean, the, predominantly you, you're by women. right. In the men's magazines in, in GQ, it, they're not introspective, are they? And the sex columns are written by women because you know the, the, the readers <laughs> find that titillating. I mean, I don't. I, I don't think men naturally find that very easy, Liz. I think I, I, th I think you're right because it inevitably it involves a vulnerability, doesn't it? And. Um, I mean, it, it's really fascinating that you said that you do it because of an anxiety that you might get fired, though, that you dig deeper and deeper and get more... Yeah, because I don't think men out. always think they're so good they're not going to get fired, I think, don't they? Well, not necessarily, no. Um, but I don't... But I think, I think you're right. I don't think, I don't think they're very good at it. And also, often, what they're going to kind of dig up if they were going to dig down there might come out kind of in a rather awful fashion as well, I think. Can I, can I sort of take Julia's point in a slightly media industry way, which is that the only time it really does matter is when it comes to awards, actually. Because if you are Martin Wolf writing very serious things, or Andrew, you know, or Gabby writing politics, you are much more likely to be lauded by the industry. No, well, actually, the columnist of the year... Not for, not for, the, it was for the interviews, sort of, year, of thing. The British Press Awards this year was Melanie Reid. Melanie Reid, who used to be a columnist on the Times op-ed pages, uh, fell off her horse on April the 1st, 2010, and broke her neck and her back, and she is paralysed. And she writes a column that has been the biggest single driver of subscriptions to the Times since it happened. And it is an, an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal thing. Uh, she was always a brilliant writer, and she is now this rare, very rare person who is this fabulous mind, incredible spirit, but completely locked in a world where normally the people who experience all those things would never have her level of articulacy to, to describe well, it's like it. John Diamond. Yeah, uh, yes, and it's like John Diamond who, who did the same sort of thing. That has been recognised everywhere. And it's because it wasn't that's stunning. not usual though, Ram. But I mean, the most people of the sort of of all the awards. So once the British columnist for the year, but if you take all the awards and you know that that's not usual. But it's not last year was very unusual. I think I can't remember if it was at the Press Awards or at the Comment Awards. I can't remember, I think you and I might have ended up having to talk about this somewhere, or I was on some sort of show when we've done this before. And um, and we had one year in which uh, more of the awards went to men. That's not that common. I mean, the political Chris, correspondent Chris of the year was, was Isabel Oakeshott. The number runner-up was Rachel Sylvester. Uh, there, you know, Gillian Tett won the overall award the year. The banks failed in 2008. It's not... I really don't think that that is... that actually the numbers work on that. And I remember the one year they did and being asked to go on a show and talk about it. And I said, yes, but last year it wasn't like that. You know, I don't think that is true. I think people give awards, they give prizes to people who they think are the best and I don't think that that is a gender-specific thing. The majority thing. are men, though. The majority, one year when it was, we had Gillian. Well, yeah, because it was so odd that it was 30%. That year was 30%, and it was so odd that everybody talked about it. And then the next year, the picture on the stage, there was Amelia and Catelyn, who, thank God, had won too, 
but that was it. There's a sea of suits and then Catelyn and Amelia Gentleman. I think that's unusual. You know, Private Eye has two female columnist sort of spoofs. One is Polly Filler, who writes a load of old rope about our au pair, you know, and that's supposed to be the mummy columnist. And then there's Glenda Slag, who is the classic, you know, Fleet Street sort of, you know, changes the mind every 20 seconds. He doesn't really have archetypes like that for male columnists. And it's as if, you know, it's, it's often assumed that, that churning out a whole load of stuff about is Britney looking fat this week or whatever it is, is all, is all that those columnists do, when actually it's at least as hard, and I would have said harder, than writing 1,100 words about libel. If we take it to the other extreme, there are some women that want to be so honest that they won't use their own name when they're writing. Um, I'm particularly thinking about a, a really popular blog at the moment called Vigenda, which I think has really exploded recently, but nobody actually puts their real name at the bottom or they just put initials. Um, is there a case where men write so honestly that they don't use their real name? Because I think that's much more common among female writers than male writers, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, unfortunately, you had the, um, the copper, didn't you, who you came a cropper with at the Times. He was anonymous. Um, but I can't... The guy who dated people... That was anonymous. I thought it was my husband, actually, but it was anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, a few. Not. It's, I don't think it's that common for men or women. I mean, for, it's a brilliant idea of Agenda magazine. It's really good, isn't it? Um, and they're two women. I mean, you're, you're absolutely clear that they're women, obviously, but, yeah, you don't know their names. No, I was just thinking that... Um, I understand why they wouldn't want people to know who they are because of the seriousness issue. They might feel that it's compromising themselves as a woman, perhaps because they're being so honest. Other people might say explicit. So I don't know. You see where I'm going? Some women don't want to carry that burden that they're being so open about themselves that they change their name. But I wondered if men ever do that as well. Mm, being worried about what you write. Never affected you, Liz, has it? <laughs> men and women both ask to be anonymous for case studies. I mean, the closest thing I can compare to is if you're doing case studies for magazines and newspapers, you know, women, actually women are probably slightly more likely to um, be willing to be named for magazine case studies if it's something they're talking about, you know, their marriage or their kids or their... I'm always amazed by the people who agree to have their names and photographs in female pieces over something like, you know, why I would shag my next door neighbour and you just think, but I'm going to put it in the belt and I don't want my husband to know. Well, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I think a lot of women will say things in print that you wouldn't expect, and it's my men, in my experience, interviewed for magazine pieces about anything embarrassing who want their names and all their details changed. Um, now, we're coming very close to the end, so each of you do a final point about does it matter about the gender balance in the British press? Media. Go on. Um. No, is my, real, is my biggest answer. I don't think that it's the most serious issue. I think that we, um, you know, here we are, we have platforms, we have voices, we can talk about this, and I think the people who are the most underrepresented voices have no platforms, and that's a much, much more serious issue. I don't think it's the most serious issue. The most serious issue facing the British press is whether we're headed for our own extinction, as we don't seem to have a financial model for our survival. Um, but if there are going to be any comment editors or comment writers in future, then I think it does matter how many of them are male and how many of them are female and it does matter what women write about but I think that only because it matters in terms of finding the very best writing and the very best thinking and being sure that you're going about that in a gender blind manner. Yeah, I agree with Gabby, I think it's not, it's not the most important thing but I think it does matter and it matters that we're not, that the evidence seems to suggest that we're not 
searching hard enough for authoritative figures, I mean, particularly in the areas that the FT writes about, who could be, could be actually writing on these, these topics and then providing an incentive to other women to push themselves forward to do, do the same job. Well, I think men have a bit of catching up to do. I think they're still very old-fashioned in the way they write, and, and we've all moved on. I mean, I used to write my husband's jokes for his columns. <laughs> yes, I think it, it does matter, but no, I don't think we have a problem with it here. I'd, I'd be much more concerned about the, you know, the lack of female voices in commentary in Egypt or... Libya or somewhere like that, um, and the need to you know, do what one can to encourage it there. Thank you very much. I'd like to you all to thank uh, Julia at Story Intelligence um, and the fabulous panel for tonight's discussion. Thank you.